Paul writes from verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The later do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, for to, me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know, for I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're starting, grab a seat, friends. We're starting the book of Philippians. Um, and the reality today is that because we're, we're 2,000 years plus removed from this particular moment in history and because we're reading a translation of a language that's not our own, that we have to work through the, the, the text pretty slowly so that we can dive in and understand uh, what has been said here. Because the goal for us is to try and get into the heads of the original hearers of this letter. What was in their imagination when certain things got said? But again, because we're 2,000 years removed from the culture, but also uh, the language is different, all sorts of idioms and metaphors will be different, words will mean different things for them, uh, that we, we kind of, there's some stuff that we can miss if we don't go deep and slow through some texts. However, uh, I do just want to encourage you as we journey through Philippians slowly um, to, to, begin to do both, to, to slowly help you know, be with us, to be present here on Sundays and to slowly work through the text. But can I encourage you to also just be reading through the book of, book of Philippians and just in one foul swoop if you want. Because what will happen is you'll get the majesty of the whole book uh, and hopefully you'll remember certain things that we've explored in this context and be like, ooh, ooh, hey, hey. whole lot more going on there. That makes sense? Uh, so that's what we're going to do. And this, every kind of week, there's like a zinger. You know, there's like in Philippians, it's packed with them. But, you know, there's kind of like the tweetable verse. We're like, oh, man, that's awesome. And I reckon this one is like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Sorry, the metal head of me just feels like there needs some sort of epic moment there. But uh, amazing, amazing statement. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, again, I can't help myself. <laughs> Uh, we'll unpack that verse, uh, it's near the end of our little message today, but it really captures so much of what Paul's trying to communicate in this passage. Everything for Paul is framed around Christ. Um, and so, and we, we talked last week about this theological term, uh, a Christological phrenesis. <laughs> Christological phrenesis, what that means, it's like 
uh, is a wisdom that's, that's shaped by the thoughts of Christ, by the mind of Christ, by the way of Christ. A Christological phrenesis is very practical wisdom around how we live today in light of Jesus' example and teaching. And so we'll see in, in this passage, it's like Paul uses actually three different examples of the way that he's in ru- rubbish circumstances. I'd love to use stronger language, but I want to stay as the pastor here. But it's a really, really rubbish, rubbish circumstances. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and he tells these stories about like how his perspective has changed, and that he's seeing these these horrible situations in a different light because he believes that Christ is at work. Um, that there's something going on that's bigger than just his immediate circumstances. Uh, so in the first one of his stories, three stories, first stories, he's chained to the palace guard, but God is still at work through this. The second story is that people are preaching Christ for the wrong motives, but he's stoked that Christ is getting preached anyway. And the third story uh, is that he's in prison, but that's not the end of the story. He believes that there's hope and he'll be reunited with the church in Philippi. So he's kind of got this perspective like, no, God, it's okay, God's at work here. And Paul wrote uh, in Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purposes. Like Paul had this deep conviction that even during the most rubbish times, God's at work for good. He's doing something good because that's what he does. That's who God is. Uh, And so I want to go through this passage in some depth, but I want you to hold on to that for yourself. Like what, what is God doing through your life right now? What's happening for you through tricky stuff where it's like, oh, no, but he's actually at work for good through this. Let's work our way through the text. From now on, do you want to go to the next slide, Ramon? I've given up putting the verse up there. Um, oh, I have, yeah, I have, I'm not putting the whole verses anymore because I'm believing that you've got your Bibles. So you can just look up what I'm working through here. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. So Paul says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me is, served, is actually serving to uh, advance the gospel as a result. It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard until everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dead and moved around for fear. Why is Paul writing this kind of stuff? Well, he, again, the context here is that Paul's imprisoned uh, and he's chained up. He's like in chains. Uh, so you've got to try and imagine this. He's literally chained to one of the, uh, of the uh, Praetorian guards uh, at all hours of the day. They would have shifts and he'd be chained to a, a Roman soldier. So he couldn't go to the bathroom in privacy. He couldn't sleep in privacy. He's in this incredibly demeaning, demoralizing, dehuman situa- dehumanizing situation. Um, but also, like, his career is to plant churches and to look after churches. And so this isn't an ideal situation for Paul, because it's pretty tough to plant churches when you're in prison. You know, wow, genius scholar here. You know, it's like, that's, that's tough. And so what's happened, though, is that uh, we talked about this last week, Epaphrodites has turned up from the church in Philippi with a, a gift, financial gift, to help look after Paul in prison because back then they didn't get the meals that our guys, you know, terrible meals, but whatever, he still got fed in prison for our boys. But, uh, but Paul has to have money to help just get him, keep him alive. So Epaphrodites has turned up, helped him out, and then Paul would have been like, hey, Epaphrodites, like, how's things going in Philippi? Like, give me the download, man. Like, tell me, like, what are the issues? How are people doing? How's what Two-Face doing? And how's Charlie doing? And all that sort of stuff. Like, he was just, and so then Epaphrodites has clearly given him a bit of an update. And then Paul's like, all right, Timothy, help me out here, bro. Let's, we've got to write a letter and encourage the church in Philippi. And so in this particular moment, it's, it's probably clear that the church in Philippi is a bit discouraged. It's like, well, this sucks. 
like Paul the legend. I mean, all the stuff's going on, and Paul's imprisoned right now. He can't plant churches. N.T. Wright uses the uh, metaphor of it's like a concert pianist with their hands tied behind their back. It's just not great because he can't do what he's really good at doing. What's he going to do? Play the piano with his nose? You know, it's like this isn't, this is, this is not going to, I'm tempted. I'm really tempted. I'm fighting temptation right now to, to do that. But we're not going to do that as a sermon illustration. But it's like Paul's stuck in prison against my active imagination. In these moments, doesn't serve me. Uh, but then Paul's like, hey, Philippi, chill out. It's okay. God's, he's so good. It's amazing what God can do. Even when things look rubbish, he's at work. And then like Paul can reframe the situation and be like, man, actually the gospel is advancing because of my chains. Isn't this amazing? And so he points to a couple of it, two examples in particular. He's like, number one, the palace guard are finding out all about Jesus. And, and, and for the church in Philippi, that would have been like, oh, that's right. Because in Acts 16, when you read about the church in Philippi and how the whole church in Philippi got started, uh, it turns out like there's a jailer that gets saved as Paul uh, goes through this whole miraculous kind of move from prison. In verse uh, 33, Acts 16, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. So this is like Paul's gone through some, some suffering here, some torture. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. There's a Roman guard. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. That happened in Philippi. And so like in Philippi, there's Roman soldiers that are part of the church there. And so as the church of Philippi hear this, they're a bit discouraged. They're like, oh yeah, that's right, it's amazing. It's amazing what God can do. Even when Paul's stuck in prison, that guy is so hardcore that those Roman guards are hearing all about Jesus. He can't help himself. But then the second example uh, is, that what, is that the church in Rome, which is where Paul is imprisoned, have heard that, that Paul's in chains, and it hasn't discouraged them. It's motivated them to go a little bit more hard out for Jesus. Where they're like, there's something about seeing someone pay the price. When you see... Don't you do, you know, when you see someone get involved sacrificially for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, I don't know about you, but that stirs up faith in me. I'm like, I want to go a little. Stephen Fowle in his commentary says, Many have learned that Paul's imprisonment is the result of his life in Christ and not the result of a straightforwardly criminal act. In addition, many who might have otherwise been silent haven't been emboldened uh, to proclaim the gospel in Rome. Paul's got no control, right? What's going on here? But he's like, this looks rubbish, but it's not the full story because God's at work. I heard a story recently that really stirred me uh, in the same vein that I think Paul's trying to get at here. Uh, my friend Matt Newton uh, pastors a church up in Auckland called St. Augustine's. Now, just side note, this is an amazing church, Anglican church. Uh, and when we were in our first year uh, as a church, before we even planted, me and my family we were living by faith. And, uh, and we got to the point where our money was very low and I was freaking out like down to like, we've got a couple of mortgage payments left, man, and that's it, you know, like freak out, praying hard out. Anyway, Matt rings me up, random, there's one of these stories that's so cool. Matt rings me up, he has no idea, right, because I'm not broadcasting that to the world. We hadn't got to that point yet, because faith, you know, it's like, it's not really faith, that's just getting the hat out, you know, so like I'm praying, like God, would you provide? Matt rings up, and he's like, man, we've had you on our heart. This is a, their church is only about five, about our age now, about five years old. We've had you on our heart. I had a chat with our vestry, which is kind of like their board, and said, we want to give you guys $10,000 for your church plant. And it was just like, you're not even in our movement. 
You're like this Anglican church that gives to a vineyard church in the Hawke's Bay because they, we were on their heart and they could, I don't know. They, and I was like, dude, you have no idea how crazy this is. Man, we're just about to hit the red button and thank you, Jesus. So that's Matt Newton, right? And you know what's cool? We got to, we got to do that to a church plant this year. We had our board, we had a little chair. It's a total tangent now, but it's like, you know, isn't the kingdom economy awesome? It was like, oh, one day we'll be able to do that. And then we're about the same stage now, and then we got to say to a church that it turns out they were freaking out, and they were about to call it and all the rest of it, and we, we as a church, gave 10000 blah, blah. Anyway, so Matt's my mate. I like him. <laughs> I like him a lot. Uh, and he's invested in our children. Anyway, Matt goes to this conference over in London, uh, the leadership conference that the um, uh, HTB guys run, Nicky Gumble and all that. And I didn't go, I just heard about it. Uh, and he tells this story. I mean, it's at the Royal Albert Hall, and it's all like leaders from around the world. And Matt comes back, and he tells the story about this North Korean lady that shared something of her story at this conference that blew his mind. And, uh, and as I heard this, it really moved me. Uh, and this lady, uh, whose name is uh, Hia Wu, she became a Christian because when she was a kid, she looked out into the field and saw her mum praying. And she was, you know, mouth moving, and she was like, what's going on here? And her mum explained that she was praying, but she obviously swore her to secrecy. You can't tell anyone about this, but her mum taught her how to pray. And so her heart opens to God, and she has a profound sense of God's presence come into her life. But then during that time in North Korea's history, they go through a famine, and they are starving. And so they make the difficult decision as a family to escape North Korea uh, and to, uh, to go to South Korea. But they, they decide for the sake of safety to split up and not tell each other where they're going to go, all that sort of thing. She winds up going to, uh, she's trying to get to South Korea via China. She gets into China, but in the end, um, some secret police, North Korean secret police, discover her in, in this little home church, capture her and take her back to North Korea. And she goes to a prison camp there. And she's placed into a woman's prison with this large steel room uh, which can house 100 women. Um, it's a, just a completely open room. But in the corner, there is a, a toilet that has a wall, and a little wall, some walls and a door. Uh, and in that space designed to house 100 people, there's 150 women. So it means it's very difficult to find a place to sleep. Uh, and if you get up to go to the loo or whatever, you're going to lose your place and you're going to have to just stand um, so you won't be able to sleep. And so it was really tough. Obviously, she said the first couple of days were the toughest. She knew they were going to be tough. Um, and what they would get is one cup of rotten corn as their food rations for the day. And so in this room, there's the, um, she said there's this kind of swing between incredible anxiety and incredible boredom. Um, so she found herself praying a lot. And during one of those times of prayer, God said to her, I want you to share your ration of corn with the prisoners around you. And she's like, how do I do that? Like, this isn't even enough to feed me. I'm going to starve. But she, but she felt the Lord say, I want people to know that I'm with you in this, uh, with them in the same way that I'm with you. So share your corn as a way of communicating my love. So she begins sharing her corn with the other prisoners. And they naturally ask her, why are you doing this? Now, this is a super complicated question. <laughs> Because if she communicates uh, that she's a Christian, she'll be executed. And if she leads others to faith, then they could be killed. So then she once more goes to God and prays about this. She's like, what do I do? Uh, and, and she felt like God say, what I want you to do is to go to the darkest, darkest, smelliest place because people will never suspect that I am there. 
And so when people began to ask her about why she was doing this and about her life, she would draw uh, the symbol of the toilet on their hand. And then they would meet there in this tiny little toilet and pray, and people began to come to faith in that place. Just before her release, word got out that she was a Christian. Um, And in this conference, um, she didn't go into any details, but for a period of three days, twice, so for two rounds of three days, she was tortured. And, um, And again, she was in this very difficult place because she didn't want to give out the names of anyone that had come to faith in that time. And so again, she's just crying out to the Lord, like, how do I get through this? And she... She said that she, uh, she was given a vision of Jesus on the cross looking at her, and that's what sustained her through those days of torture, is that she had this vision of Jesus on the cross looking at her, and she just beheld Jesus on the cross, and that's what sustained her uh, during that time. Eventually, she was released from prison, and very long story short, she wound up um, escaping to South Korea. And so she's at this conference in front of all these leaders from around the world, And Matt Newton said, she's like, this is the message I would love you to tell the churches that you represent. And I heard this story, we've got to tell Babe, you know, you've got to to honour this lady. And here's the message from, she's saying it's the Royal Albert Hall, but this is the message that she wants us to know. Jesus is alive and Jesus can do anything. And that's unreal. Now, I hear that story and it's just like, it just it exposes my apathy, my disengagement, my cynicism, all the rest of it, right? And this is exactly what's happening for Paul. It's like being a Christian is not easy, but Jesus is alive and he can do anything. Hallelujah. And so I hear that sort of story and it's like, I want to go all in again. I want to go, oh, let's go, you know? And this is what's happening for Paul, who's been tortured himself in prison, is in chains. As you hear, you see that sort of commitment, and you're like, I want to go hard for God. I don't want to just swim in the apathetic, cynical culture that's so designed to cool my faith in Jesus. I want to be red hot for Him all the days of my life. And, and so we need to behold Hey Woo, and we need to behold Paul in chains in this moment. And in the same way it emboldened the church in Rome, we need to let it embolden us in this very difficult, cynical culture in which we live. To go, I'm not going to be some lukewarm, half-pie, cruisy-woozy Christian. It's the worst. I mean, we've all, I've been there a hundred times. I remember most of my Christian life's been spent in that space. <laughs> you know, <laughs> But I tell you where I felt most alive is when I've gone all in. That's when you get alive. That's when like, it's just like, no, I'm all in. Jesus is alive and he can do anything. He's alive. Aslan is on the move. That just changes the game. So while they're going through it all, it's like, come on, God's up to something. And he's saying to the church in Philippi, hey, Philippi, the Roman crew here, they've gone up a gear. Come on, Philippi, let's go. Come on, baby, yeah. Let's go. Amen. Verse 15. Change, kind of jarring change of gear here. Yeah, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me. Blah, blah, blah. What does it matter? Well, that matters is that Christ has preached, and because of this, I rejoice. I mean, it's pretty positive for a lot of this whole thing, and then it's like this kind of like complicated dynamic. Again, Paphrodite's probably whispered in his ear. There was some stuff going down. 
uh, and there's people preaching Christ out of envy, envy and, and rivalry and out of selfish motives. Reading commentaries on this is probably most likely uh, there's these other preachers. And we read about this because we did a whole lot of work on Galatians. Some of you guys were in our church when we worked through the book of Galatians. And one of the big things Paul addresses in the book of Galatians is like this kind of teaching that was going on at this particular point in church history that was based because it came out of a Jewish Israel sect. It came out of the Jewish religion. Jesus was a Jew, surprise, surprise, you know, and all the early disciples were Jewish. And God comes in the midst and it's like there's this whole story of Israel that is totally part of our story, but God comes to bring this new covenant of grace. Hallelujah. And so it's like, you don't have to get circumcised anymore. Come on, church, where's the boys? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. You don't have to go through kind of religious stuff to be accepted anymore. It's a work of grace. And so even our spiritual practices are in response to grace so that we will position ourselves to live a life of love. We do not do spiritual practices to earn His love. Nothing you can do to earn it. So, but, but there's this kind of, like it's contested at this point in church history. Not contested anymore. We're, we're grace all over, baby. Hallelujah, you know? And, and, you know, and all the rest of it. But, it's like, but at this particular point, there's all this going on. And so um, Gordon Fee uh, says this, uh, jealousy is probably one of the basest expressions of human fallenness. That in, is a line you should write in your journal. I mean, that, like, it's we've all struggled with it at some point, right? Someone's doing awesome and we struggle with it. We, we live in a comparative culture with social media designed to breed discontent, blah, blah, blah. So jealousy, but it's a base, it's not, a, it's, not so, it's something to work through and deal with. It's not something to just accept as, don't, like, work, if that pops up, underneath that is some brokenness that God wants to heal, right? Anyway, that's a whole other sermon. Out of envy towards Paul, and perhaps was kind of an unsavory, unsavory delight that enjoys kicking an opponent when he's down, they now view Paul's imprisonment, evident of God's judgment, question mark, as their chance to preach Christ correctly. Uh, and so uh, there's a whole dynamic going here uh, where Paul is dealing with all of this stuff. Um, but he's like, at the end of the day, he's like, man, but it's great that Christ is being proclaimed. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that great? And it, what, that, is, that is a phenomenal Christological phrenesis perspective. <laughs> don't tweet that because no one will know what the heck's going on. And I don't know about you, but, but guys, I, I look back o- over my life and like, there's still an issue today, some of this stuff, right? Because what you're dealing with, uh, Paul's addressing two things here, a character issue and a theology issue. And so today, those issues are still there. So there are folks that have preached Christ. I look back over my, over my life, and, and their character was broken. And eventually that stuff comes out of the wash. It, it, like eventually, most of the time, that stuff gets exposed. It just can take a long time. But I tell you right now in the church around the world, God is purifying his church. And so there's a lot of stuff coming to the surface and it's his mercy, not his judgment. So hallelujah, that that stuff's getting cleansed and sorted out. So I look back on my life and like, man, I'm like, man, there were people that like my life was so impacted by their teaching and preaching and leadership. And yet it turns out they were incredibly flawed in their character. And that's, that's not cool. It's not easy to deal with that. Like there's a, I, I'm carrying literally layers of grief in my heart. I was talking to someone about that this week. 
I'm seeing a counsellor on Thursday. Yay, hug the cactus, can't wait. Uh, but it's not about that, but about a whole lot of stuff. But it's like, but it's like I'm grieving because these are my heroes, some of these guys. It really hurts. And then there's theological stuff. Man, I, I look back in my teenage years before I went to Bible college, and I got, I got frothed on some, on some theology that was all kinds of crazy, man. Like, I'm not proud of some of the stuff I got jazzed on. Um, but I tell you what, I appreciate Paul's maturity here because I think in my immaturity at times I can just like, I can want to just take those guys down and, and get on social media and whatever, you know, and just pile on. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some stuff that gets said publicly from time to time, but I'm like, at the end of the day, I met Jesus in those places still. And it's not binary. It's not black and white. It's like every single time. I am so flawed in terms of character and theology, I just don't know where. That's scary. (laughs) Every preacher is human. Every leader is human. And there's brokenness in character and theology. Uh, And so that's just, you're going to be disappointed, church. But Paul's trying to lift our gaze from human reality to, the, to Christ, who is flawless in character and theology. Hallelujah. And so there's a maturity, I think, in our faith that we can get to the point where we accept the reality of humanity, make wise choices still about who you come under in terms of teaching, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, Paul's still rejoicing that Christ is proclaimed. And he's the one that we want to make famous. And he's the one we want to lift up. And he's the safe pair of hands. And so he's, God's just amazing how he just will speak through lots of... He's spoken through a donkey. You know all this stuff, right? He's spoken through a donkey. If he can speak through a donkey, he can speak through Harvey. He can speak through you, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's pretty good at using Muppets. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> and if he didn't, none of us would be... You know, it's all who he is, right? But, it's, but, it, but Paul acknowledges a reality here that is a reality, We have to engage with that. But what's important for Paul is that Christ is proclaimed. So I've tried to work through my history and just thank God for what he did through flawed and broken people and then to process the grief of my disappointment and who I thought they were and turned out versus who they actually were and all that sort of stuff. That's okay. We look to Jesus. We keep looking to Jesus. We keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus, church. Keep looking to him. doesn't matter what you've gone through. Keep looking to Jesus. Don't lose sight of Jesus. I'm so gutter that people are leaving the church because of human leaders and their disappointment in them. Don't look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. On we go. I'm not going to read that next, but you can look at it in the Bible because of the sake of time. Um, but we're at now verse 19. Everyone there? He continues to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and provision... So yeah, there's some complexity in the Christian world, always has been, always will be. We preachers out there with wonky motives, skewed theology. Paul says, we continue to rejoice. God is at work and he highlights two things, the prayers of the church in Philippi and the provision of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Two things that he's he's like, I rejoice. Why does he rejoice? For I know that through what? Your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Again, God will work through this, through prayers and through the provision of the Holy Spirit. So uh, prayer is powerful. Prayer is a, Paul is a praying pastor. You're surely picking this up by now. I mean, he's mentioned prayer. It'll be a good exercise for you to do. How many Highlight how many times prayer is mentioned in the verses we've already looked at. I mean, it's there every couple of verses. There'll be some reference to prayer. The early church was a praying church. Uh, it said that Acts, the book of Acts, is a commentary between prayer meetings. 
It's interesting that Luke is a commentary between Jesus' prayer life, before or after times of ministry or during times of complexity and decision-making. And, uh, and Luke wrote Luke-Acts. So Luke is a story of Jesus, and, and you'll just notice he's praying all the time. Acts continues to be, and the church is praying all the time. That's meant to tell us something, church. Uh, prayer connects us to God. Prayer humbles us. Where we move, this is the, oh, church, would we grasp this? We've got to move beyond human strategy and clever ideas and massive production and snazzy programs to prayer being the thing that is the engine room of the church. Like this is the whole buzz. We are not, like we are not Greenpeace, some NGO trying to do their thing to help the world. We are the church trying to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that is a spiritual endeavour that begins when we get on our knees. So like there is, a, I love the prayer culture of our church, but I'm going to continue to get the pom-poms out to say, do we actually believe that prayer is the engine room? Right? Like do, does our lifestyle reflect the conviction that prayer is what is the engine room, it, it is the catalyst, it's the hinge in which the door swings that releases the things of God's kingdom? Uh, I heard this, this again, Braveheart-esque kind of riff from uh, Dr. Wesley Jewell back in the day. He says, prayer is a form of spiritual bombing to saturate any area before God's army of witnesses begin their advance. <laughs> prayer is the barrage to drive back the demon hosts which are determined to stop the triumph of Christ. Prayer is the invisible force to break down every opposing wall, to open every iron gate and every fast closed door. Prayer penetrates every curtain of darkness. Prayer crumbles every bastion of darkness. Prayer demolishes every fortress of hell. Prayer is the all-conquering, invincible weapon of the army of God. Therefore, Jesus, our victorious captain, lives to intercede. Oh man, I want to see that prayer room packed tonight. Like, ah! it's like so, so Paul's like, it's the prayers of the saints and it's the provision of the Holy Spirit that means I can rejoice because I know that God's at work. And rejoice is like, it's not even some like little word, it's like exceeding joy. So Paul is in chains, imprisoned, having been tortured, and he's got the, Epaphrodite's turned up, got the gift, he's run, and he is just exceedingly abundantly filled with joy. Not, not as some like theory, he's feeling it. Just this mental. Because he's like, prayer works and the Holy Spirit's with me. Oh, let's go, you know? I eagerly expect and hope that no one will be ashamed, by, but, will have, but I'll have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, or by, whether by life or death. Verse 20. Like, Paul's there literally, like, will I survive the imprisonment? And he's like, I expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. What's he saying there? It's like, he's, he has been tortured, he will be tortured. And he's like, I expect and hope that I will, I will not be ashamed. I will not recant, I will not bail, but I'll have courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. That's heavy, church. But he's like, will he survive? Whatever torture he's going to go through and hold fast to his faith. I really like this. Uh, T.N.T. Wright in his commentary says, We shouldn't assume that just because the present passage strikes a cheerful, almost jaunty tone. Don't you love the British scholars? Jaunty. What a great word. Oh, friends, use that this week somewhere in your life. Oh, I'm feeling a little jaunty today. Oh. Anyway, just because the present passage strikes a cheerful, almost jaunty tone, this was how Paul always felt. His belief never wavered. 
Indeed, it came through the terrible experience strengthened, but his feelings, listen, his feelings came and went. Learning to distinguish between the two, to maintain belief and hope with or without the accompanying feelings is itself part of Christian maturity. So Paul wasn't like, everything is awesome, everything is like constantly, you know how these super annoying positive people, they may be in your life, you know, I might be married to one, you know, and it's like just <laughs> constantly, no, she's not it, she's very human, um, but she does have, on the, you know, who's done Strength Finder, positivity's right up there for Jen, right? Everything is awesome. Um, and so Paul, Paul isn't like writing in the jail, torture, all the rest of it, and he's just like, he, he, he's not human. Listen to, listen to this in 2 Corinthians where he talks about what he's going, what's going on right here. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, listen, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Blah, blah, blah. Like, so like despair was something that Paul experienced. Listen, friends, denial is not faith. Denial is not faith. So Paul, taking his cue from the Psalms, is brutally honest about his situations, and at times he would be in despair. But through it, even in that brute, because God can't, he can't transform the person you're pretending to be. We've said that as John Tyson line. God can't change the person you're pretending to be. So if the Psalms do anything for us, they give us the invitation to be brutally honest with God. Like he knows anyway, but there's something about throwing your lollies at God that's very biblical. Very biblical. And, and I would suggest you imitate David by getting it on paper. I've done this from time to time. Like get it in your journal. I normally scrunch those bits of my journal up and bin them because <laughs> I'm concerned people will lock me up if they see uh, they stumble across my journals down the track. But it can be. I did this the other day. I literally last Monday, journal brutal honesty went to the fire, burnt it. Felt fantastic as a cathartic experience where I'm like I'm not going to pretend to be somebody with God. And even if, if my like the Psalms are a great model for prayer, they're terrible theology. A lot of them. That's okay. Don't have, you don't have to have perfect theology when you're ranting and raving at God. Just let it out and be honest with God. So Paul has done this, clearly. And then God can meet him in that reality. Like God, like the truth sets us free, not what we'd like to be happening. It's engaging with the truth that brings healing and sets us free. So Paul does that. Uh, and then as God meets him in that reality, he can then come to a place of Cairo, of deep, abundant rejoicing, even in his rubbish circumstances. To, to be exceed, the, the, the strong concordance there, to, be, to rejoice exceedingly, <laughs> to be calmly happy. Like that's what Paul's experiencing, and he's done that because he's done the work of being honest about what he's going through. This is a longer quote, but it's worth it from Gordon Fee. It would be easy to dismiss this passage either as anecdotal narrative or as Paul simply putting the best possible face on a bad situation. That, but that would be to miss too much. Paul can write things like this first because his theology is in good order. Theology matters. He has learned by the grace of God to see everything from a divine perspective. This is not wishfulness, but deep conviction. Listen, that God has worked out His divine intentions through the death and resurrection of Christ and that by His Spirit He is carrying them out in the church and therefore through both Himself, Paul, and others. 
It is not that Paul is too heavenly minded to be in touch with reality or that he sees things through rose-tinted glasses. Rather, he sees everything in the light of the bigger picture. And in that bigger picture, fully emblazoned on our screen at Calvary, there is nothing that does not fit, even if it means suffering and death on the way to resurrection. Such theology dominates this letter in every part, and we should not be surprised that it surfaces at the outset, even in this brief narrative. That's good. Like, Paul has a Christological phrenesis. He has a divine perspective about what's going on, so he can hold on. God's good. He's at work. Jesus is alive, and he can do anything. So then he goes on to say, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's a huge, huge statement. Like, but that, that's why Paul can be just so like, in. Like, he'd just be so confident. He can be so filled with joy. It's because for him to live is Christ. And now this is challenging for us, guys, And if you stop and think about that, because it's like I've got to ask the question of myself as I'm prepping this. You guys, you guys get convicted once a Sunday. I've got to sip with this whole bad boy all week. You, Man, the cross I carry for you guys unreal sometimes. So the question is like, Harvey, are you living for Christ? Is for you to live as Christ? Man, stop asking me the questions, Jesus. Or is to live positional authority? Is to live income generation? Is to live securing my children's future comfort? Is to live the next holiday? Is to live to be known or to have some sort of fame or influence? Is to live to have accomplishments? Or is to live just to go to that next party next week, and is that, is, but is, but, or is it to live as Christ? To live as Christ, man, it's like my whole life would be orientated around Jesus, that I would see things from his perspective, I'd be fascinated by him, he would be under my skin, I would be pursuing him, I'd be seeking him, I'd be praying about him, I'd be reading him, I'd be worshipping him, my, my thoughts would be consumed with him, I'd be looking at, at, at the word of God and trying to interpret what's happening in our cultural moment through the, the kingdom of God, right? like to live as Christ, for that I'd be permeated and saturated and consumed with Jesus, like that is... That is what Paul is, to live as Christ. And to die is gain. And this is not some escape of suicidal thinking. Um, this, is not, this is very different than a moment of despair when you're like, I just want to get out of my pain. Paul, like, to die is gain. For Paul, he's, he's, he just has a vision of what is to come where he's like, he's frothing. And this is why, again, like, I love Paul because it's like a bit... There's a little bit of cheeky stuff going on here, which I think is so cool. It's so subversive. It's so the gospel where it's like, oh, yeah, there's some preachers out there, you know, preaching wonky stuff. But I don't care because Christ is proclaimed. <laughs> it's like, and then it's like, oh, man, I'm in change. But guess what? The gospel getting preached here in the prison and all these other people getting emboldened in their faith. It's like he's kind of got the screw you devil attitude going on. And, and then he's like, man, but to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's like he's so like, doesn't matter what happens, I'm a winner. Can you just start seeing that? Oh, that's happening. I'm a winner. I'm stuck in change. I'm a winner. Oh, these guys are pretty. I'm a winner. Everyone's a winner because of what God is doing. This is what God does. He redeems and restores all the crazy and does something only he can do. And so to live as Christ, like he's just so consumed with mission and love for the church. You'll see that in a second. But then to die as gain is like, man, and then like the worst happens to me, I get to be with Jesus. How cool is that? And this is... Again, another Braveheart moment uh, coming up. Here we go. Ur McManus said this great quote. Listen to this. Jesus' death wasn't to free us from dying, but to free us from the fear of death. 
Jesus came to liberate us so that we could die up front and then live. Jesus Christ wants to take us to places where only dead men and women can go. Oh, that is a good line. That's exactly what Paul's trying to get at here. To live as Christ, to die as gain. So I've just died up front. I do not have fear of death and therefore it doesn't matter what happens to me because to live, I'm consumed with Christ. To die, I get to be with Him. Hallelujah, everyone's a winner. That incredible. just cannot, and He's with me through the crappest stuff that I can go through right now. He is still with me. Just like that woman in the middle of torture could have a vision of Jesus on the cross looking at her and that God who threw that so she'd not betray her friends. Like Jesus is everything for Paul. And so he, in verse 25, he comes to land he's convinced of this, I know that I will remain. So he just is like, I know that I'll remain, that I will, uh, I'm convinced that God wants me here for a purpose and that's to look after you guys. And I'll continue with all of you, listen, for, for your progress and joy in the faith. So progress, we've already mentioned this, the second time this has come up, we're only two, two sermons in. Progress in the faith, formation, sanctification, your lifestyle changes a bit more from year to year because you are, you are consumed with Jesus. So your lifestyle changes. There's a progress in your faith. You are not stagnant. You're moving forward. You're not regressing. You're moving forward in Jesus to become more like Him and joy in faith. The ongoing formation results in more joy in your life. Isn't that good news? And one day we'll be together. So Paul's like, through my being with you again, boasting in Christ, will abound the country. There'll be a time. Here's the, a picture of what it looks like. This is like, it's a real bad photo, but this is like, there'll be a time, Paul is saying, when I'll be reunited with you, church, in Philippi. And it will feel like this. Ah, we're together. Um, I can just feel the estrogen coming off that uh, photo. Um, but one day, he's like, I will continue. And so that through my being with you, There'll be a time where Paul is reunited with the church in Philippi. Your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So there'll be a day we'll be reunited, Paul says, and, and you'll be like, isn't it amazing what Jesus does? Isn't it amazing you were hanging out together? Isn't this amazing? This is the joy that Paul has. One day we'll be together again. They'll declare the goodness of God and we'll boast about Jesus. He is amazing. Jesus is alive and Jesus can do anything.